Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada. I'm here with Dan Rudman. We're continuing our series on revival, uh, specifically looking at uh, the history of revival in the world and the church age. And our last episode, where we kind of breached this historical discussion, we focused in on the first Great Awakening, which is really kind of, you know, the first and second Great Awakenings are, are kind of the textbook, you know, classic examples of, of revival in, in the church and revival in the, the new covenant community. So we spent some time talking about the first great awakening. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back, uh, key figures in, in that discussion, you know, you're probably very familiar with these figures, Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, George Whitfield, who came over from England and did a number of, of tours, preaching tours in America, the Wesleys, John and Charles, who, it came over multiple times to Georgia and did did ministry, and you know we talked about the Moravians and Zinzendorf uh, at Hernhut and the Moravian Pentecost in 1727, and so kind of the key dates though where things were really you know going on 1734, 1735. That's where we see the revival with Edwards, and then there's there's more revivalistic type things going on you know in the next couple decades, few decades after you know that kind of initial big spark at least at Hernhut, 1727, and then with Edwards, 1734, 1735. So that's the first Great Awakening. And, and you know, for the most part, pretty biblical, doctrinal, you know, we talked about this kind of reclamation of, of, of justi- justification of, by faith alone, uh, high view of, of Christian piety, you know, holy life, practice your faith, you actually live out the Bible. This is kind of the spark of evangelicalism in the world, in a sense. So... All that's going on, First Great Awakening. And then we're going to move now in this episode into the Second Great Awakening. So to kind of give you just a framework, some dates. So again, Edwards, a key figure. He died in 1758. George Whitfield, a key figure. He died in 1770. And then obviously we have the Declaration of Independence and, you know, the birth of, of the nation, the birth of of the United States of America, 1776. So keep just those dates in mind. So that's kind of the tail end then. We're, I mean, by the death of Edwards and, and Whitford, we're like, we're kind of done with the First Great Awakening. And then we have this big revolution. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's as significant as it gets in, in, in world history when you, <laughs> when you have a war like that between the, these, you know, bef- between England and then them coming over to the, you know, New England and the colonies and, Man, so that that changed the landscape, obviously, and and kind of pushed the church and Christianity kind of back into a little bit of some spiritual darkness again, for sure. So Dan's going to actually read uh, just a, a portion of an article that kind of sets the stage again, as we kind of did with the First Great Awakening, but set the stage for now the need for another type of revival or, or awakening right before, you know, what we would call the start of the Second Great Awakening. So why don't you, why don't you read it? Yeah, this is uh, written by J. Edwin Orr, theologian, historian. And um, he writes this. I could probably say this, but it's easier to read it. He's so eloquent. Not many people realize that in the wake of the American Revolution, there was a moral slump. For the first time in the history of the American settlement, women were afraid to go out at night for fear of assault. Bank robberies were a daily occurrence. 
The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. The Baptists said they had their most wintry season. The Presbyterians met in General Assembly to deplore the ungodliness of the country. The Congregationalists were strongest in New England. The Reverend Samuel Shepard, pastor of a typical church in Lenox, Massachusetts, said in 16 years he had not taken in one young person into the fellowship. Hmm. So church had not grown 16 wow. years, wow. not one young person. And I could go on, and all the denominations were struggling. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to Bishop Madison of Virginia and said the church is too far gone to ever be redeemed. Isn't that interesting? Here we had all this dynamic stuff going on in the First Great Awakening, and it's within, you know, 20 years, 25 years after Whitfield. Yeah. Quarter century is all, and boom. Boom. Voltaire said Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years' time. In case you think it was the hysteria of the moment, Kenneth Lauderette, the great church historian, said it seemed as if Christianity were about to be ushered out of the affairs of men. The churches had their backs to the wall. It seems as if they were about to be wiped out. The colleges at that time were also in poor spiritual condition, which is interesting, by the way, because a number of these colleges were founded in the First Great Awakening, by those that had been stirred in the First Great Awakening. So here we go. Uh, This is, again, pushing late 1700s, pushing 1800 now, right in there. A poll at Harvard indicated there was not one believer in the whole student body. A similar poll at Princeton said they revealed only two believers in the student body. Uh, Only five in the student body that didn't belong to what they called the filthy speech movement of the day. Hmm. Student riots were common. They had a mock communion at Williams College. They had an anti-Christian plays at Dartmouth. And remember, again, these universities were founded by great theological thinkers in the First Great Awakening. Oh, yeah. So we're only talking, you know, 50 years since those things had developed. Mm-hmm. 50, 60 years. So they burned down Nassau Hall at Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of the Presbyterian Church in New Jersey and burned it in a public bonfire. Wow. Christians were so few on campus, they met in secret like communist cell and kept their minutes in code so that they would, uh, no one would know who they were and would not persecute them. Huh. Now, that was in America. It's crazy. It's crazy to think, right, like that's happening not long after. Yeah, some of us that get older, we look back and think of these golden years and stuff. It's like, no, 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 this was a bad deal. Yeah, there's all these ebbs and flows. Yeah, always. Always a lot more going on. And so to the emphasis of this article, I'll read the question here. Yeah, yeah. Um, How did God change that situation? That's what Orr asks. Right. Well, he says that the key here was it came through the concert of prayer. That's Hmm. what he emphasizes. He goes back and he talks about, <coughs> excuse me, a book that a, a, a little booklet that was making its way around. There's a there's a little bit more to the article, and I'm passing over that. But basically, it was written by Jonathan Edwards, and it was it was in their day, you know, when they would write these things, these long titles. He wrote this little booklet, a humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the relig- revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Hmm. That was the title. Crazy, right? Yeah. Um, title. And, and Orr's <laughs> emphasis is we must have, this is what he's emphasizing, he believes in this article, we must have the explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer. Hmm. So uh, in New England, they began to call together pastors. It was actually a Baptist pastor by the name of Isaac Bacchus. In seven, so this would be 1794. Conditions were at their worst. He put out a plea for every uh, minister in the in, in uh, every Christian denomination in the United States to uh, begin to pray. Hmm. Like a, like a, we should all be praying for the same thing. Yep. So they set aside the first Monday of each month to pray, and then he says it wasn't long before the revival came. 
and we could read more. But when we say revival game, again, we defined that earlier, it seems like what began to happen was, we'll go back to our term, the manifest presence of God. It seemed like God began to show up in a profound way in churches. Right, right. And bringing about conviction of sin and a call to holiness, a call to people to pray. It, it was... Um, Outflow of missionary efforts, yeah, missionary well, and, work. And we can get to that here in a moment. Yep. But, but, but I'm just saying on the front end, yep. there's this real experiential, if I could use that, Christianity. Right. And God's presence seems to be very much here. Yeah. And there seems to be conversion going on. Mm-hmm. People, you know, uh, in the church... Mm-hmm. You had some numbers, I think 10%, only 10%. Well, yeah, that. listen yeah, listen to this. This uh so again, 1776, that's when we we become a nation. So right after the revolutionary war, obviously church attendance plummeted, and some historians estimate that there was less than 10% of the population in colonial New England that actually attended church post immediately post revolutionary war. So I mean, you go you're going from the first great awakening where you have this incredible seems like legitimate revival. And this amazing, you know, preaching ministry of, 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 you know, Whitfield and the Wesleys and all that stuff. And boom, <laughs> plummet right back down to 10%. Like, yeah. That's, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, I don't even think it's, it's not that low right now. Yeah. Not even close. Which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. So this is an interesting thing. I don't know if this is jumping ahead too much, but cause we're, we're going to, if we're, if we're, yeah, kind of breaching like a historical survey of what's going on with the second great awakening. So that was the kind of the context of, okay, there's a need again. Need again. That's it. And then we can talk about what happened. Right. And I think what we're going to get to here, Sam, and it's, you know, for the listeners is the second great awakening is a profound shaping of the Christianity that most of us know today. That's what I want to talk about. Right. And there, it was something profound about the sense of God's presence and revival that was real. At the same time, and we will get to it, there's a lot of muddy water here. A lot of muddy water, a lot of theological issues, a yep, lot we'll of to. philosophical issues so, of so how you do ministry. I think ministry. the way we talked about approaching this the first this, this podcast yeah. is to kind of give this overview of the glory of this thing, yeah. in a sense. In, in a sense, the good of it. Yeah, the good of it. There was a lot of stuff happening, and you'll be able to tell we're going to start alluding to certain players that started bringing in some, some elements that were going, hmm. It starts looking like muddy water. Now. And we'll talk about, we'll dig into those. On a, a separate On the second, yeah, the one after this episode. So keep your eye out for that. But so, this is interesting too. So, yep. Well, what the Second Great Awakening did is it, it, it totally changed the whole makeup of, of denominations in America yeah, too. right, right. So this is, this is reading from Nancy Percy's book, uh, Total Truth. She has a really sweet chart here. And... She labels it religious adherence by denomination. So she has a percentage, numbers, mm-hmm. from 1776. So again, right. Declaration of Independence. And then 1850. So this would be basically the front end of the Second Great Awakening to the back end of the Second Great Awakening. And we're, we're looking at, okay, how did, how did these numbers change? Yeah. Adherence to these different denominations. So she has congregationalist, uh, 20.4% of, you know, religious adherence, Christian adherence in the colonies, you know, the birth of the nation would have been congregationalist, 20.4%. Post-Second Great Awakening, 4%. Mm-hmm. Episcopalian, front end of the Second Great Awakening, 15.7%, you know, of America yep. was Episcopalian. Yep. Post, 
3.5%. Presbyterian, front end, 19%. Back end, 11.6%. Baptist, now I'm a Baptist. Dan, I think you would identify as a Baptist. <laughs> I'm a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> I know you, you don't like to be put in a box. <laughs> so Baptist. No, I follow. Yeah, yeah. You're, reform- you're a Baptist. I'm a Reformed Baptist yeah, guy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So 1776, Baptist, 16.9% were Baptists. Post Second Great Awakening, 20.5%. So that's the first one so far that actually grew. Get this, Methodist, pre, you know, Second Great Awakening, 1776, 2.5%. Teeny. <laughs> 34.2% after, the second, great after the second Great Awakening. Whoa. And then Catholic, 1.8%, 1776, by 1850, 13.9%. Piercy says you kind of have to put the Catholic off to the side because Basically, that was, all, was, that was most, all immigration. I was going to say it was mostly immigration. Yep, that right? was all immigration. Yeah. So what we're really keen into is this, what's going on in the Second Great Awakening where, where Baptists and Methodists are growing yeah. and Congregationalists, Episcopalians, and Presbyterians are decreasing. Yeah, it's interesting. So all that's a part of the discussion too. Oh, man. It's so interesting. I, I don't know how we can get to all this, but, <laughs> but since you're mentioning it, I would tell anybody that, that there is a tremendous book... Um, Total Truth by Nancy Percy. Yeah, yeah. I think it was written in about 06. I yeah. think if I remember right. But I say that to you, not anything about me, but that I was preaching on a number of themes out there. Revival and Awakening, yeah. uh, Loss of the Christian Mind, a number World of key stuff. themes. And I could see how all these themes kind of fit together in a package going, this is why we're dealing with what we're dealing with in our evangelical and in our, I would say, our American culture, American yeah. context. It's very interesting. And I, it just made sense to me. These pieces were in my head and certain authors I had been exposed to, you know, Ian Murray and and uh, Harry Blameyers in England and, and Francis Schaeffer. Mm. It's just very interesting. All these things were in my head. Yeah. And then in 2006, about that same time, Percy comes out with this book, Nancy Percy does. And I'm looking, I happened to pick it up in a Christian bookstore and looked at the content, table of contents. And it was like Ooh. all my chapters. Yeah. <laughs> no, I couldn't have written it. I'm not even pretending I could have. I, I don't have the brilliance she has. But it's, it was the themes that made sense in my mind. If I were to sit down and have a discussion with somebody and say, here are the pieces of the puzzle, why we're dealing with what we're dealing with culturally, particularly as Christian, as you know, in our Christianity in America. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, you just said that, and it, it sparked a memory in my mind that just came in. And it's it was the weekend that I met you. Okay. And we're walking. So I, I just met you the night before. All right. And now you just, you just said that, and a memory sparked in my mind of me and you walking back to the truck after duck hunting. Really? And I slew. And you were telling me about your manures and all this stuff that you went through. Yeah. But you were also telling me that if you were to ever wrote a book, it was already written. Yep. And, and that it was Nancy Percy's Total Truth. That's it. I would tell everybody. It's so funny that just all of a sudden that memory came. Yeah, if I ever were to write a book back then, people were saying, hey, when are you going to put all this down because they were hearing me speaking on it? Yeah, yeah. And I'm just not a, you know, maybe I should have learned that discipline. That's a different discussion. To just kind of sit down and write. I'm not an author guy. And I just, you just go, go, go. I like to talk. Yeah, yeah. I'm a mouthy guy. And so I was talking about this stuff everywhere. I was telling me, oh, no, this is how it fits together. This piece, this piece, this. Well, she's got it. I'm just telling everybody on this podcast, if you want to read a great book and get the history of the, awakenings and so what you're alluding to though sam is that in this second great awakening and we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves we first want to say it really does seem like 
God did do something. Something in a, in a was historic done, yeah. church history, revival and awakening, post revolution. It came as all these churches were praying, and God's presence showed up, and it became this great conviction mm-hmm. and great pursuit of holiness, and lots of conversion of people even in the church, mm-hmm. and spilled over outside the church. Mm-hmm. And we, I can talk about more of that here in a moment. But it, it was, it seemed very real, and right. it started in the Northeast, well, which was most of our United States then. In all fairness, we had, you know, it was the east part of the country. Right. We didn't have the whole frontier yet. Right. But you know, it started up there in in uh, Northampton, and then. Uh, you know, Washington D.C. area and the colleges in Virginia, right, and when right. we think of Princeton and Andover, and yeah. you know, and uh, you know, Connecticut, Massachusetts, right. those these areas, uh, that's kind of where it, and it, it seemed like it was very real. Yep. And then it spread into the Kentucky, which took on a kind of a different flavor, and then eventually spread to the what we think is the frontier west. Yeah. And so what you're alluding to that. Percy brings out, and we don't, we're not here to critique her entire book, which again, I would tell you to read it. You're going to get a real sense of it. Is that there was this movement from a confessional, say high church, high creedal, high confession, yeah. you know, Westminster Confession doctrine, of Faith, doctrine, yeah. the high view of that kind of a Christianity yep. that you grew up in, you were catechized, and in time as you were in that environment, you would embrace the faith. Yeah. But it was a family, it was a community, it was the part the government was part of it. It was this whole environment. And yeah. so think now what happened in the American Revolution. In the American Revolution, there was a there was a um uh breaking away from the the big mother country, right? Mm. We're our own. We're independent. We're mm-hmm. frontiersmen. We can do it on our own, right? We have freedom. Freedom. Well that same Liberty, yep. That same thing began to happen within the, into the church, church. Christi- Christianity, right or wrong, but this is what happened. Yep. And so there became increasingly an emphasis mm-hmm. on, hey, this is individual. You don't need to worry about the big church, clergy, confessional, catechesis thing. You need to personally come to know Christ personally. Mm-hmm. You and your Bible are all you need. And it and it took on a whole flavor itself, and so all of a sudden, what happened? Especially again, what you already read the the numbers, Baptists and Methodists. These were like circuit rider preachers, the Methodists. They're going out into the frontier, and they're going to the common man, and they're, yep. who is not a big intellectual guy. He's not university guy. He is a cowboy. He's a frontiersman. He's you know drinking beer in the saloon and yep. homesteading a piece of property, and they're saying you can know God, and you don't need this high. You know, academic, scholarly pursuit. Right. Okay. Kind of a, it's a, a beginning to be a bit of an anti-intellectualism. That CD it thing. was an anti-intellectualism. Yep. Definitely. And all you need is to have this experience with God. Yep. And you're good to go. Yep. So they did these circuit riders, you know, rode horseback and, and they would yep. put on these revivals. So this is where we get into the discussion. Maybe we'll want to, we'll, yep. we'll want to emphasize that in the next Eventually, episode, right. re- revival versus revivalism. Mm-hmm. But... They put on these revivals, and again, it's it's like the the circus came into town. It's like right. okay, we're gonna everybody's gonna come pitch their tents. It's like you know we fest. If you're yep. I'm from Minnesota, like big big country music festival, and everybody pitches their tents in the campground. Yep. And then at the center, you have the grand stage, the big stage where the performer comes. And so it's literally that you can go look at pictures of this. Yeah. Yes. And so so it was kind of like we don't need the high church. We don't need a cathedral. We don't need a. We don't even need a pastor necessarily. Yeah. yeah. You just need somebody that can just. 
preach this fundamental basic three-point gospel, four-point gospel, yep. you're good to go. I mean, and there are phenomenal orders. Yeah. No doubt about it. So, so again, wherever this is going to take us in our conversation will be interesting. But one of the things that I said early on when you and I started talking about this, Sam, and I hope your listeners, the listeners' podcast will catch up on this, is like, even for me, me personally early on, is like, I, I said revival and awakening. It intrigued me enough in history, and then you know, biblically in history, as we've already talked about, that I'm like, there's something real here. Mm-hmm. So how do we gas, grasp the real thing mm-hmm. without oh, my typical term, the dog and pony show? Mm-hmm. And I found it fascinating because this was Percy again. She quoted, or I'm quoting her as she wrote about Edwards. Mm-hmm. See, what's fascinating to me, what Edwards picked up on, and by the way, he learned some of the, some of his expressive. Preaching, they say, came from Whitfield. He heard Whitfield, and he sat there and took notes and wept through Whitfield's sermons. Mm. Because Edwards was brilliant. Mm-hmm. So Edwards turned out to be this, this really interesting guy. Look what Piercy says about him. Um, here it was. Um, the emphasis on making Christianity a felt thing, quote-unquote, this is these new preachers in the Second Great Awakening, did not mean evangelicals were outright anti-intellectual. Not in the early stages, at least. Okay, So it wasn't like they were trying to be totally get rid of all intellect. But there was an emphasis on this experience, this conversion, this, this encounter with God, a personal relationship with God that actually occurred. Okay, yep. But here's what's interesting. What they opposed was merely an intellectual knowledge about God or of God. In other words, they were opposing... Well, people know doctrine because they grew up in a catechesis, but they don't seem to have any life Mm. in them, right? And that was part of this revival and awakening is it brought a new life to the church, brought a new life to God's people. And part of that new life, I would suggest to you, were people who were were not regenerated yet. Mm. See? So here's what she says. Uh, Many succeeded in maintaining a balance between piety and rationalism. Hmm. And we may need to go back to that, but piety is really what Hernhut and these different people, uh, you know, Zinzendorf, these people were emphasizing. Yep. Spiner. Yep, Spiner, this, this experiential Trump. Christianity. And again, when we say that, we have to kind of be careful with right, our current they were, culture. They were, they were, they were, those, those Lutheran pietists, Spiner and stuff, they were a high view of the Bible, yes. doctrine. So we're not talking about like some of what goes on today right not just, necessarily just charismatic do-op, Pentecostal do-op Jesus stuff. yes it's not just it's that. Not that but it really was this has to be real a real encounter with God a real experience yep so there were those that were trying to balance between piety that's piety and rationalism in other words a logical rational doctrinal faith mm. and she says Edwards being the most outstanding example mm. Highly educated, Edwards maintained an admirable blend of theological learning and spiritual fervor. Mm. And I would like to think that, you know, not just me, but all of us would want that. Like, I, yeah. want, I want the real thing. So we I want to see for. a supernatural reality in somebody's life mm-hmm. where, but you don't go off on a tangent that way and lose doctrine. You need both. Mm-hmm. You need both. And so, you know, um, was it... Uh, D. Martin Lloyd Jones. He talked about doctrine on fire. Oh yeah, you know doctrine, logic on fire. Large, he, he would talk about logic on fire. Even doctrine, I've been told, on fire. The point is, is like no, 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 and it's similar then to what we're talking about. Very similar. In fact, it's probably a perfect metaphor of stacking up the firewood. Yeah, like no, 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 no. I, I, I think we hang on to the Bible. We hang on to doctrine. We emphasize that that is what God lights on fire. Yeah, but we still say, but God has to show up and light it on fire. Right. And so in the Second Great Awakening, what you've got going on here is it does seem like God came down and did a tremendous work. 
But then there, it began to be moved out by these preachers that went into the frontier and went to, if you could say, you could say the less educated, the, this new uh, uh, American revolutionary patriotic person mm. who is individualistic. I get to go start off my own land in, you know, in Kansas and Oklahoma, you know, these, these new territories, and I'm an individualistic frontier kind of person. Right. Which kind of fits with America, right? Yep. And in those people, okay, in yep. many of those people, something really started happening. Like many of those people were getting converted. Mm. But what they were getting converted to was a Christianity that wasn't as high church that people were used to, say, thinking coming out of Europe and then yep. establishing over here. It wasn't your, you know, Lutherans and Episcopalians and Presbyterians. Right. It was those that were emphasizing, no, you individually can have a relationship with God. Yeah. And it wasn't like a, a total abandonment of Scripture, but it was less, I call it high church. Yep. Less academic. Less second, yeah, for sure, less academic. And it's like, no, you're common man. So what's interesting, what Percy labels that, maybe she gets it from somewhere else, was a, a populist Christianity. Hmm. Which is interesting because that what you said earlier today, Sam, as far as percentages, in large measure, we still have a huge populist Christianity in America. Mm-hmm. We do. We have a. It's it's pretty huge. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's 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 since the second great awakening. You know. You think. I mean. It's just huge. And so, we could go further here, but that's kind of what was happening. Yeah. And again, we want to emphasize it really does seem in history, and there's lots of writing you could read about it that God did do something here. Right. Well, like, no. Mark Knoll says, and I quoted him a lot in the last episode. Yeah. And he says that the Second Great Awakening was the most influential revival of Christianity in the history of the United States. Yep. There you go. Even more, even more influential on the landscape of evangelicalism and Christianity in America. Even more influential than the first Great right. Awakening. So that's saying that's saying something. So if I could run through it real quick, yeah, there, yeah. Were, there were three key players that we will probably we need to come back and talk about when yep. we do the next podcast yep. about some of the muddy water. But um, you had a Yale Divinity professor by the name of Nathaniel Taylor. He yep. was a key player. Yep. He kind of moved away from the theology and therefore the you could call it the um, the practice of an Edwards or a Whitfield, right. and he moved more towards human free will. Yeah, Arminianism. You could say Arminianism, yep. okay, but it was human free will. Stressed the ability God had given all to come to Christ, and this was flying together. You have to understand, it was connected to this patriotic, independent spirit. Yeah. That, that was the milieu of the society, yeah. the culture. And so the second key player during this time then is Charles Finney, and out of Charles Finney, underneath Finney, you had a bunch of Finneyites. <laughs> I don't know if that's what they would call them, but a bunch of evangelists that took on the same kind of flavor and mode of Charles Finney. Yeah. Okay? And uh, a lot of emphasis on prayer. Yeah. A lot of emphasis on what they saw as the Holy Spirit. Uh, a lot of emphasis on what um, Finney wrote uh, uh, lectures, revival lectures, called the Revival of Religion. Yep. They created the thing called the Anxious Seat. That's yep. during that time where you, you think of the altar call, calling somebody forward. Yeah, he basically okay. invented it. I'm sorry? Finney basically invented it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you think of the altar call and evangelism, making a decision, that's Charles Finney. Yeah. He actually was developing that. L- let me just give you, like, he, he was born in 1792, and he died in seven, 1875. Okay. So he... Um, you know, wrote about the laws of revival. Uh, it caused a lot of concerns for the Reformed Calvinistic mm-hmm. folks. Um, he did again. He did emphasize prayer and the Holy Spirit, and he, he was emphasizing this conversion. 
and he saw it, thought, saw, saw it as uh, spontaneous, momentary, like, or, you know, in the moment right now. Yeah. And you, you, Boom. you have the power, you have the, just, you can make the decision. Yes. You make the decision. And therefore that's why when he wrote about these uh, lectures, as well as um, the laws of revival, what he was saying was there was a methodology by which you could create this. Oh yeah. So now think what we're saying. I got some here. quotes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He yeah. thought, he thought you oh, could yeah. create revival. Oh, so, yeah. so what we're saying is it appears again, we're trying to be very nuanced and careful here Yeah. that God actually did do something it seemed in in the history of the church to be a response to God's people seeing this desperation in their churches and desperation in the in the communities, and God's people led by God's ministers calling people to pray, and then this manifest presence shows up. People start being convicted of sin, concerned about the lack of holiness, concerned for the presence of God. Conversion begins to happen within the churches, and then this thing just takes on a whole world of its own, if you will, flying on the back of this new independent patriotic country that we have. Yeah. And so um, it spreads like wildfire. Yeah. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment. But the other player that we will get to then during this time, which is also really fascinating, this will be the fascinating discussion, is a man by the name of Ashel Nettleton, yeah. who we don't hear about. See, many people, even right now, as we're talking about this, Probably many of you in evangelical worlds may have heard before the name of Charles Finney. Yeah. You may have never heard of S.L. Nettleton, oh, which right, is right. so interesting. Right, right. But Nettleton equally saw tremendous things happening during the Second Great Awakening, except for he very much, on theological grounds, opposed Finney's yeah. methodology. Well, they even had a run-in. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they had a conflict. I, I want to quote some of that, so, too. So Finney, in his Laws of Revival, was also, just as a word, again, we're just doing a, a big, quick survey, would have been called the New Measures. Yep, new measures. There was new way. It was very different than Edwards, very different than Whitfield, pretty much even different than Wesley, even though theologically similar in the sense we'd say Wesleyans were, you know, um, more Arminian. It wasn't just that. It was like you could actually set up a series of meetings, like a performance, uh, and create a revival. Yep. And if you did the right things and you had the right music and the right pressure on people and to come forward to this anxious seat. They literally had have ushers walking around looking for people who looked like they had distress on their face and they would, you know, grab them by the arm. Don't you want to go forward? Don't you want to yeah, go forward? Yeah. And he put them out there in front of everybody at the anxious seat. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, uh, can I just give a little background for Finney? Just a, just a bit. Uh, yeah. If you want to, well, yeah, I mean, I, he was, the only he... other thing I want to do, I wanted to give some, uh, new numbers and some other things that came out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if you want to go to Finney, now, go well, ahead. Well, just, uh, just, uh, cause we were bringing him up so much. Just yeah, go ahead. keep in mind, like he was, he was trained as a lawyer. He was a lawyer and yep. he was converted apparently. And yep. he became a preacher after his conversion. Uh, and in the 1820s and thirties, he really was the, the most famous, most known preacher yeah. in America for sure. Right. Uh, but just to g kind of give you a glimpse of his, of his character and his, kind of rebellious spirit and out of this comes this, these new measures and stuff. But at his ordination, you know, he's, he's supposed to meet Westminster standards and he's supposed to sign the Westminster confession. So part of his, the ordination process is they wanted him to, to give an extempor extemporaneous sermon, which really means like, okay, you, you didn't do any sermon prep. You didn't go write out a sermon in a manuscript. You're not prepared, but we want to see as this committee, if you can, Give sound biblical teaching on off the cuff on the fly, on the fly which yeah. means you you have knowledge in your head. Good. So it's part of the process. Yeah, got but it. he's like, I don't want. He didn't want to go up into the pulpit, right, to give this sermon because he's yeah. such a rebel, and so it kind of against the you know the order of things that he he gave this sermon down in the aisles, 
you know, of the pews. He didn't want to go into the pulpit. So that's kind of more of his char- character. Uh, should I even get in? Should we? Should I wait? But should I get into some of his doctrinal positions or yeah, not? Maybe wait. Okay. Yeah, we'll wait. So let me just say then. So as an overview, yeah, just an overarching view then. Okay. Uh, a couple, some of the results here in the Second Great Awakening. Okay. Yeah. So once again, and you'll resonate with this. This is very interesting. Um, it's a sense of um, you're free from traditional interpretations, so we don't need creeds, we don't need confessions. It's a Bible only. It's a man who comes to faith in Christ to he and his Bible. Yeah. That is the result. Yeah. And you want to go, okay, is there anything wrong with that? Well, yes and no. See, this is the issue. On one hand, yes, we do believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, which is the doctrine of, you know, the, this, the, the, the Scriptures are clear where they're clear. It's clear. But, but at the same time, it's like, okay, but can an independent man just do his own thing? apart from anything historic for 2,000 years. So it's just interesting. So you ended up with these new, out of that came, we, I've already mentioned, Disciples of Christ, Free Will Baptist, Calvinistic Methodist, even Universalists yeah. came out of this. Interesting. Um, a lot of volunteer societies, Christian societies, yep. that were separate from denominations again. Remember, there's like this breaking away from the high order, the high denomination, the high structure, and so independent universe, you know, independent volunteer societies are. Well, could I even give some prep, some uh, background on that a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, you have this. This is this is something that you like to talk about too. You have modalities and sodalities. Yeah, right. Yeah, this is very interesting. Yeah. And your modalities are your your local church, right? Right. Yep. Yep. So your local church, if you're thinking Catholicism, your local parish or local diocese. Uh, back in the Old Testament, your local synagogue, right, and and the New Testament church is built off of that. So you have your modality, your local church, yep. comprised of a bunch of you know different people, uh, you know men and women, children, old folks. There's it's it's general, and and then you have your sodality, which would be in our mind like the traveling evangelist band, yeah. uh, or, or maybe in today's terms the parachurch ministry, and. Once the Reformation happened, uh, Protestantism had not yet developed, because it's brand new in a sense, any of those sodality structures. Right. So it's just the modality. It's just the local church, and that's yeah. where all the emphasis Yeah, which is meant they really didn't even have a lot of missions. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's no missions, because yeah. the missions has always been primarily done, so, done by a sodality. Sodality. So when you look at Catholic history, well, church history, because it's our history too, mm-hmm. even for Protestants, who were the ones that were doing all the mission work? It was it was the monastic orders. Yeah, it it was orders. It was, yeah, Sodalities. monastic orders. These monks. It was these Franciscans and Dominicans and yeah. Benedictines and then the Jesuits. And so they were the ones that were doing the missionary work. So in Protestantism, right after the Reformation, there was nothing like that. Right. So and then you had this, you had this, uh, teaching. We we would call it hyper Calvinism. And a lot of people think that Calvinism just is hyper-Calvinism. No, 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 no. But during that time, you know, late 1700s, I think, you know, you know, late 18th century, uh, hyper-Calvinism was kind of winning the day. And and this idea, it's this idea that, hey, God is sovereign. He's going to save who he's going to save. And we don't need to go bring the gospel to anybody. Mm-hmm. We don't need to call people, go to the pagan and the heathen and call them to repent because God will save who he's going to save. It's none of our business type of thing. So there was no missions. And therefore there was no orders or 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 missionary societies to do this. So part of this whole Second Great Awakening thing though is that 
during the heart of the Second Great Awakening, you have the you have the spark of of these missionary societies that are pr- cropping up like left and right. right. Think of William Carey. I mean, he's he starts the the uh, Baptist Missionary Society in London late late very end of seventeen mm-hmm. hundreds. Yeah. Ed and Iram Johnson, the first Judson American too, missionary. He's early. He's Burma, right around 1812, 1820 yeah. in there when he's getting sent out right. to go to Burma, consider, considered to be the first. Yeah. So it's it, so what's interesting, you could have a, a huge conversation about this. So there's this kind of breaking away from the, you know, the high church, the traditional confessional, yeah, liturgical thing, yeah. And it kind of, and on one hand, you know, it takes on a life of its own, maybe to a point that you start saying, "Okay, wait a minute," you know, you got Finney going to an, some kind of extreme, yeah. and yet, in God's great hand of providence in the world, it's fascinating because all of a sudden, in 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 reality, the gospel is spreading through all these through all this. Mm-hmm. So again, volunteer societies is where I was at when you went on that. Yeah, so that's what that was my valuable, sidebar. Right. We call the sodality, and they would have been separate from these actual denominations. Right. Um, there was a high view of the uh, universal church. All these people who have come to faith in Christ are actually all part of the church, universal church. It's yep. a spiritual unity. Yep. It doesn't have to be an ecclesiastical body with a right with a strict curriculum. Catechesis is what we call sure. that. Right. Um, there was a desire out of these societies to truly Christianize and reform America and the world. Um, there was a view that there was something special about America, maybe even a millennial hope, which mm. is interesting when you start thinking eschatology, special blessing on the U.S. Um, so there was a real movement towards this uh, revivalistic, that's what a lot of times it's known as, revivalistic kind of preaching, very yep. aggressive, uh, and it shaped you know, Protestantism. It began to shape what evangelicalism really was. And yeah. so um, here's just some quick numbers. And we'll talk about those more in the next time. But it it, it it appeared at least responses to Finney, people, quote unquote, coming forward. Yep. Uh, that they would have said, well, we have these many converts. You would look at the population at the time of here in America yep. of 9 million. And uh, they thought there was like 250,000 responses to Finney. Hmm. Quarter million. Wow. Out of 9 million people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Uh, S. Helen Nettleton, who we'll get to, I'm so intrigued about, is that there were studies done of his ministry 30 years later, and it looks like there were 20 to 25,000 converts yep. under Net, uh, S. Helen Nettleton. Now, I'll just go ahead and tip my hand right now. What was fascinating is that out of Finney, the, a vast majority of those converts became very questionable whether they were the real deal or not. Yeah. And out of that milieu of all of that individualistic make a decision for Jesus religious fervor came lots of fallout of they call it the burned over district but you think this is also the development of Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, all sorts of stuff starts coming mm. out of the same milieu. It's very mm. interesting again. Were there real converts? God showed up. There were real things. Yeah, yeah sure. There were. Yeah. But there's these questions. Whereas Nettleton, what's interesting is they went back years later and they found over 90, 90% of those converts still in, still members of local churches. Mm. And we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but, but think of the missionary movement. Here's another interesting. Uh, during this time, during the Second Great Awakening, 600 of your Midwest colleges were started <sighs> by those that would have been considered revivalists. Wow. That would have been the term. Think of an evangelist, a preacher, a teacher, who was just out there preaching and... 600 Midwest universities were started. 600? 600. That's, that's, a lot. The, that's the number. And again, 
how do you qualify all these numbers? I'm not getting into it, but those you can read it in history books. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. So here, here's a here's a statistic too on the Baptist side. Um, so a decade a decade before the 19th century, so you know we're thinking 1790. Uh, Baptists in America numbered just under 70,000, and by mid-century, so you know 1850-ish, at the end of the Second Great Awakening, they had in- increased to more than 700,000. So you go from 70,000 to 700,000, getting close to a million. And Methodists, by the end of the Second Great Awakening, like I said, you know, I gave you the percentages, but they jumped to over a million. Yeah. So it's just crazy. So it's crazy. Again, there's just something happening. Yeah. There's something real. Yeah. And yet there's these questionable things that we have to be honest about. Yeah. Yeah. We have to look at. And so how do we hang on to the real thing, capture the real thing, but have these questions? And it was a fascinating time. Very fascinating. A lot going on. Right. And so much of your evangelicalism today, uh, again, to your listeners, if you haven't studied history and you know, most people don't spend a lot of time on this sort of stuff necessarily. But if you do, you go read it and you start studying, you start realizing, oh, there's a reason why we think the things we do in our mm-hmm. evangelical circles. There's a reason we have certain kinds of meetings and do certain kinds of evangelism. And, you know, for in my era, and I know some of the younger folks are, are getting more removed from this, but, you know, anybody my age would have remembered even as a non-Christian. We all remember Billy Graham, you know, the Billy Graham crusade on TV yeah, yeah. and all these people coming forward. Well, that's all. That whole system. You can trace uh, it right oh, back to Second Great uh, Awakening. Honestly, uh, saying a prayer, you know? Yep. Decisional regeneration. The idea like, okay, if you make a decision, you got to make this decision. Yep. You got to say this prayer. Go, okay, if I open up my Bible, I don't, don't see it. You don't see that. And I'm, so then you go, where did it come from then? Second Great Awakening. Second Great Awakening. <laughs> At the same time, all these ministries were ministering on, Sam and I were on a campus today, you know, talking to people about Christianity. And it was, it, it's interesting, right? Like they talk about these campus ministries and people who are non-Christians knew about all these campus ministries. They did, they didn't they? About. Yeah, so they a lot of them said, oh yeah, they're on here. We appreciate them, blah, blah, blah. Even though that's not my thing, I'm agnostic, blah, blah, blah. But they knew about them. Yeah, that's did. all I'm saying. And so all of us know of, you know, the big campus ministries, you know, Navigators, Campus Crusade, InterVarsity, all those kinds of things. You think of uh, the missionary agencies many of you are involved in. A n- number of you are involved with, say, some prison fellowship ministry or some prison ministry. That was all birthed out of the Second Great Awakening. Isn't that crazy? See, so we're sitting here going, there were some of these wonderful things that you go, okay, it's real, right? Like, it's it's pretty awesome. It's like, wow. And and really, you know, we are, we're, Sam and I are part of Ambassadors for Christ International. Yeah. You know, started in 1948. And it's like, it's, you know, we have a history and a root that goes back to into the Second Great Awakening world. Yeah. You know, revivalists, evangelists. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're a ministry of guys like that. Yeah. You know, and yet again, I, I would go back to my quote I read to you earlier. Edwards was this premier um, guy that seemed to be able to hang on to, at least demonstrate to a large degree, both the pietism, mm-hmm. a very experiential, real experience with God that that changed the way you lived and had discipline in your life, and at the same time, a deep logical doctrinal thinking. Yep. And you brought the, he brought those two things together. He's a very interesting guy. Yep. yep. Not everybody has always done that. So, right. Yeah, I mean, that's why Edwards is. I mean, still so many people's favorites. Yep. I mean, we will forever love people. Will love Edwards, and I love Edwards. Well, I think that's probably good enough for an overview of what's going on in the Second Great Awakening. I mean, 
again, a, a lot of this revival type preaching, circuit riding. Let's let's go to a new place, set up this pitch pitch tents, set up the stage, get these revival preachers to come on the stand and give these really amazing messages that weren't so intellectual and were and were for the common man. And something happened. Baptists increased, Methodists increased. Uh, out of it stemmed all these different missionary societies and stuff like that and people were going all around the world to do missions so a lot a lot a lot was going on but now we're going to transition into our next episode so just keep an eye out for that uh they'll probably drop at different times and we're gonna we're gonna drill into these theological you know muddy waters that that were going on and we're specifically going to compare and contrast finney charles finney with asahel nettleton yeah. And we've we've talked about this before. Back we when we did the series, man, a couple of years ago now probably on evangelism, mm. we did we did talk about Finney and and Nettleton. But it'll be good to talk about it again because it's just so interesting, so fascinating, and provides just a just a really good context for a theological discussion yeah. on conversion, on revival, on what's how God actually works. It'd be really great. And I have a lot of quotes because I want to quote Finney. I want to just tell you what he says, because man, I do not like what he says at all. (laughs) I'm not going to put words in his mouth. I'm just going to read his words and you're going to see for yourself or hear for yourself because this is a podcast. Like, okay, this guy might be out to lunch a little bit. Well, see, that's the thing you said earlier. You actually, however, I I was going to pick up on it and I missed it earlier in the podcast. You said something. Oh, you said he was a lawyer or attorney. I think you said lawyer. Yeah, lawyer. Yeah. And supposedly was converted or something. Yeah, yeah, I said, said supposedly. It. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. and I and I thought when you said that I thought, "Oh, that's interesting you're saying supposedly because truly, again to the listeners, there is this discussion about Charles Finney that's a really intriguing based on what he said by the end of his life people there are many people who've studied this stuff, who've looked at this, and mm-hmm. you can read it for yourself and you begin to go, "Wow. Was this guy really regenerated? Did he really know the gospel and know Christ, and I see. I, I'm looking. Well, at yeah. Let's, 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 just, let's pause because that's that's going to be for next discussion. Yeah, but can I go one more step? Yeah, that's going to okay, be go very it, valuable for the next conversation. Yeah, yeah. Do it. That was as intriguing to me as trying to figure out where Finney is or Finney isn't. Yeah, yeah. Was more what you're going to see is their practice of evangelism, of work in the church, of ministry. Yeah. Very much hinged off the what they believed. Their theology always, always. Their theology actually influenced the way they thought about how they did ministry. And a lot of Orth- people don't orthodoxy that. leads to orthopraxy. And this is why it's so important to think through why you think what you think. Yep. And so we'll get to that. Yep. Okay, sweet. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Preach and Persuade podcast. You can subscribe. That would be awesome so you don't miss an episode. You can give us a rating on on whatever you're listening to, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. That would be awesome. You can visit our ministry website at afci.us. Man, about like about a month, less than a month maybe, we're probably going to be actually launching our new website, which will be really cool. Uh, you can find our this podcast, the Preach, Preach, Preach and Persuade podcast, on the AFCI website when the new website launches. And that'll be just a great place to, you know, if you have friends or people that you want to, um, you know, direct them towards our content, you can just direct them towards the AFCI website. So that'll be cool, and all that's coming. But thanks again for listening, and tune in to the next episode. Bye.